What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated. Life comes at you fast, Rob. Just last week, as Jay-Z would say, it was all good just a week ago. Here we are having this intellectual conversation about, oh, what should the Warriors do? What direction should they go? Should they manage Steph's minutes carefully and uh, you know, maybe play for the future? Should they trade off some of their pieces? Here we are having this real high-minded discussion. And wouldn't you know it, Wednesday night, Steph Curry, two-time MVP, breaks his left hand on a fluky collision with Aaron Baines, the Phoenix Suns center. And now they don't have choices. Now they're just really, really bad. And Rob, this is your new hometown team, your adopted hometown team. How many Warriors games are you going to the rest of the season while Steph Curry's out over under <laughs> at at point five. What do you think? <laughs> the diet has certainly changed a little bit, but I mean, I have to say, have you know, the real estate market out here being what it is, having just you know, I personally just spent hundreds of millions of dollars to build the Chase Center from the ground up to not have Steph Curry there to inhabit it is a pretty tough look right now. Yeah, I mean, I just remember last year. I think it was maybe in February of this past year. I took the the tour of the Chase Center. And they're showing me like the million dollar suites where you've got the personal butler, you know, your own private wine cellar, wall to wall screen so that you can watch warm ups while having your elegant dinner that's served to you on, you know, very fine china and all of this. And now I'm just picturing all of these Silicon Valley billionaires watching Marquise Chris go through his pregame warm ups. And it might be the funniest and most depressing thought in the world. I mean, this is the ultimate. Uh, you know, come up, it's uh, hubris. I mean, whatever you want to call it, that's that's what they're going through up there. But seriously, like, what are you going to do? Are you going to take a helicopter to Sacramento? Are you you coming down to LA more often? I mean, does this alter your life as a writer? I mean, I think it probably will one way or another, just because the games won't necessarily be as interesting. But I'm not sure Sacramento is a better option at this point. Maybe I do just need to move down to LA with everybody else. You know, it's so funny, the media stuff, it's just always on my mind now because we see writers, you know, following stars around the country. So it's sad how quickly my mind went to like, hey, I wonder if there's going to be any Warriors beat media like midseason trades, right? Like, can we get a couple <laughs> people like move to like the Brooklyn Nets or can we, uh, you know, just pile up a few more people here down in Los Angeles? It's not like we don't already have 150 people in these postgame locker rooms for LeBron. Um, it will be fascinating to see the fallout because they just went from the center of the NBA universe for five straight years to a team that's going to be basically unwatchable for the next however long it is until Curry comes back. I would guess something like multiple months. You look at the other ramifications from this, an all-star spot may open up if Steph can't get back healthy and you know earn a selection through the fan voting and, and player voting process and then also want to play in Chicago. So that could be uh, another side effect. Uh, and this also could kick off you know, potentially uh, a tank race, you know? And so I think that's where we're going to start. We got a question from Mike and he says, with Curry out with a broken hand, doesn't this put the Warriors in a similar situation to the San Antonio Spurs during the 1996-1997 season? If they luck into the top pick, which player would be the perfect Tim Duncan to Curry's David Robinson? In this scenario, Clay Thompson would be Sean Elliott. Look, there's going to be plenty of time, Rob, for us to dig into like, okay, you know, who would be the best, uh, you know, partner in crime uh, to build around with Steph Curry. 
Um, I don't think there's a, you know, needless to say, there's no Tim Duncan in this draft class because there's only one Tim Duncan in the entire history of the universe. Um, but if you are Golden State, would you view this as a blessing in disguise, right? Because we we talked about how tricky it was going to be for them to sort of navigate a path and, you know, the upside of their team really required having an awesome offense to make up for their tough defense. Is it better that reality just slapped them in the face? I mean, sometimes it is better to have these decisions made for you in a sense, especially if, you know, over the course of the year, a couple months in, you're staring down, having to up Steph's workload just to kind of keep the wins coming, to have to adjust your team concept just to kind of stay on pace for, you know, an eighth seed or a seventh seed or kind of flirting with that boundary. Like, that's fine. And especially, you know, as we talked about with the chase center, like you want to fill seats, you want to make sure this is a profit- profitable venture. I don't get the impression the Warriors are going to struggle with that. Although without Steph, maybe that's a different, you know, I'm sure that's a different calculus, but we'll see just how much. But I think the tanking is going to kind of come for them one way or another. You know, with all due respect to Eric Pascal and Jordan Poole and these guys, like this just isn't a team that's going to be able to compete in the West. It's a similar formula, I think, from a D'Angelo Russell perspective to what we saw from the Nets last year, except if you replace all of their role players, all these quality role guys, with more marginal NBA players or more developmental projects. And that's that's a really tough sell in terms of a night-to-night draw or, you know, around the Bay Area, but also in terms of, you know, winning some games. So I think whatever they wanted to do, I think that's now out the window. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we can overstate that here. There is a real chance that they have, what, a bottom three offense and the worst defense in the league here for the next couple of months. I mean, that's definitely on the table. I'm always fascinated when awful teams are awful everywhere. <laughs> I don't know what it is about me, but I always get really excited. Like if a team can finish dead last in offense and defense, uh, that might have happened, you know, with the uh, you know, the Hornets or the Bobcats that one year. It rarely happens, but it's in play for Golden State. I mean, I don't how much do you think a guy like Russell could prop their offense up? I mean, could he make it, you know, if, if he just has a really good couple months, or could they be in the top 20? Is is that feasible or is that too much? I think it's probably too much, but I mean, if you said they were right around 20, if, you know, D'Angelo and Draymond just have like unbelievable pick and roll chemistry, I guess I could see it. I just, I just don't buy it, especially for a guy who, you know, for everything that Russell does well, he doesn't get to the free throw line. He doesn't penetrate deep into the paint to get like really high efficient looks. And so you're you're really relying on a jump shooter on a, on a nightly basis and a jump shooter who can pass really well and who can handle pretty well. But that's just not going to get you into, you know, a, a, even a mediocre offense. Yeah, it's no secret. I'm not the world's biggest D'Angelo Russell fan. It would be hilarious if he proved guys like me completely wrong and just like put the whole team on his back. And it was his, you know, all around phenomenal offensive playmaker. I do not see it. So um, if we're pretty much convinced that they're forced into a tanking situation, I think Bob Myers came out and told ESPN, uh, Ramona Shelburne, something along the lines of, you know, tanking's not in their DNA or that's not what they're about. Or, or maybe it was Joe Lake up the owner. I mean, either way, like that's fine. You can have whatever mentality, whatever sales pitch around it that you want, but you're going to be really, really bad. My question is, at some point you have to make some decisions. So does Steph's injury change your thinking with regard to either a D'Angelo Russell trade or a Draymond Green trade? And I mentioned these last week because, you know, to me, they should have been options on the table, at least for Golden State to explore, to consider, because they have to look at this as a three or four or five year plan of maximizing, you know, Curry's chances to you know, get back into that title hunt kind of going forward. And right now they just don't have the depth. They don't have the complementary talent to do that. Uh, 
Would you be more inclined to trade Russell or Draymond Green or both this season because of Curry's injury? I honestly don't know that I'm any more inclined than I was a few days ago. And some of that is just because the 2020 free agent market is so bad that I think I would place my bet on that cap space, on some team throwing you know some good young players at you, some picks at you, whatever it is you're looking for to to land one of those guys to get you know when the contracts are a little bit more workable there's a little more wiggle wiggle room around the league versus now I mean you're already waiting for a certain time window with Russell with Draymond I'm I'm really not looking to trade him at this point I think he's still really good he still compliments Steph and Clay really well which is ultimately what we're kind of betting on so I'm I'm playing the long game with those guys how do you feel about it I I mean I don't want to be you know overreactionary or whatever but I don't think Russell's a fit there I never really loved the idea. I was willing to give it a chance, but I didn't see the makings of real great interpersonal chemistry between him and Curry. And once Clay comes back, then, you know, to me, that just gets crowded. And I just think, you know, Russell's destiny is to be the lead guard of his own team and not in the shadow of another guy. And that team might not be very good. You know, he might not ever uh you know develop into a true traditional star but i think you know viewing him as like uh the pick and roll partner with carl anthony towns in minnesota for the next five years i can definitely envision that uh you know viewing him propped up like reggie jackson was when he got signed by uh, the detroit pistons and you're just trying to ride him as far as you can go i can envision that having him just sort of like as this offshoot of the steph curry show in golden state it just doesn't really make any sense so I was already inclined to explore trades for him and my you know, shifting decision-making process in terms of what I wanted back has now shifted further. And it's go find some young players, some picks, uh, you know, wh- whoever's going to be someone that you can rely on, who can give you quality minutes, rookie contracts, you know, for the next three to four years, that's what you're targeting uh, in a Russell deal, as opposed to, you know, wing depth to try to make a postseason run, you know, in the, in the short term. With Draymond, it definitely gets easier. Uh, I mean, you brought up the issue of his uh, patience or his happiness in a difficult environment. Uh, The environment just got really, really difficult, right? Uh, And there's not going to be any way around it. So that is coming to a head. And he's also just the type of player who should be on a, uh, you know, a contender. I mean, that's where his value comes from. I don't think he brings that much uh, you know, to a team if they're not, you know, competing for titles. I mean, we know how he feels about the difference between an 82 game player and a 16 game player. We hype him up for being an incredible 16 game player. I'm not sure he's that great of an 82 game player at this point. Right. And so uh, it just feels like a little bit of a mismatch. Uh, again, if you're Golden State, you now have to ask the question, if the next window of competition involving Steph Curry and, and Clay Thompson you know, say it's two years down the road, is Draymond Green still going to be that guy? Is he still going to be capable of leading an elite playoff defense? Is he still going to be capable of being the third best player on a title team, uh, factoring into account all of his miles, uh, you know, some of his slippage in terms of his athleticism and his consistency, and the fact that his offensive game has really deserted him here the last couple of years? I think if you're Golden State, you can easily look in the mirror and say, man, we love Draymond, Bay legend, build him a statue, retire his jersey tomorrow. But this guy is not necessarily a player who needs to be around two years from now. And when you're in that kind of a situation, the motivation to 
trade early to maximize the return, uh, you know, especially in a you know trade deadline window where there could be a bunch of teams jockeying to win the West and try to make the finals. Draymond could be a, a game-changing type piece for some of the teams in that group. I could see a trade uh, happening in February. It wouldn't shock me. What about you? I don't know that it would shock me. I mean, I think there's definitely truth to the idea that for Draymond, it's only going to get harder. Like defending like he does, playing like he does, every year it's going to get a little bit more difficult. And, you know, he'll get even savvier and he'll pick up some things that allow him to adapt. But just with that, the gradual decline in athleticism, the gradual decline in the amount of energy you want to be expending on a nightly basis, like you're saying, to be an 82-game player, it becomes a tougher and tougher sell for any kind of undersized center. And so from that perspective, I could see the Warriors, at least some some part of their front office, being pretty forward thinking and thinking, you know, looking at the writing on the wall. And as you're saying, if our competitive window is two years from now, what good is Draymond to us then versus what can we get for him now? And especially if we get a younger player now and they have all these developmental reps while we're kind of going through a losing season, while we're going through, you know, taking these punches, is there anything we can gain from that? And I, if you can get a young elastic player right now who could be the next running mate for Steph Curry in addition to a pretty good draft pick potentially and Klay Thompson coming back and whatever you get for Russell I think you can start to see the pieces of the next Warriors contender start to take shape but we also can't jump too far ahead and just assume that's going to happen I think a lot really needs to fall into place for the Warriors to be really good again hey guys what's up this is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Look, I need to apologize because I started with a basketball argument because that's really where my mind usually goes. I think there's a strong basketball argument for these trades, but there's a stronger financial argument for these trades. Next year's salaries, Steph Curry, $43 million. Clay Thompson, $35 million. D'Angelo Russell, $29 million. Draymond Green, $22 million. If you have all four of those players, that's your team. All you're going to be getting is scraps around those guys around the edges. I mean, all just based solely on the math of those four highest paid salaries. Something has to give here. You should not be paying four guys that much money if they can't even manage to you know start with the 500 record here in the first couple of weeks of the season. Uh, that's just kind of foolish lunacy, right? So one of those guys is going, uh, at least to me. Like if we're going to fast forward 12 months, just based on the money alone, one of those four players will not be... Uh, in the Bay Area any longer. Otherwise, you're just hard capping what your potential is as a team uh, on the court uh, because you can't acquire talent uh, you know, in any other meaningful way. And by the way, Kevin Durant did some in, uh, interviews this week, and he said two interesting things. First of all, 
he kind of confirmed that Draymond chased him out of Golden State with that uh, you know big on-court uh, disagreement they had last year in Los Angeles, which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, second of all, though, he said, look, part of my thinking was influenced by I didn't know how they were going to be able to retool the roster after you know Iguodala departing and Livingston departing. Um, you know, he said, just basically look at the salary numbers. You know, there's just no way to do it. And there's some truth to that. Uh, there's no question. So um, I think we need to be, as viewers, shifting into this mentality of Golden State's going to blow this up. You know, it, it may not happen in February, but within the, 12, the next 12 months, the Warriors are going to look a lot different. I can't see this core maintaining. Well, I mean, I think that's the the factor that really contributes to the degradation of any great team, any dynastic team in particular, is the salaries go up, it becomes harder and harder, you know, the, the role players get older, and it becomes harder and harder to replace those guys, to your point about, you know, KD's perspective and all that, and trying to find, you know, the next Andre Godala or the next Sean Livingston, like, those are very tall orders, those are such specific players and thinkers and leaders and defenders for that team, that you know, even if Kevin Durant had stayed, I think they would have had a lot of questions in filling out the roster. They're different questions because you still have two of the top, you know, four or five players in the league potentially on your team. But there still would have been a lot to figure out. And so without Kevin Durant, that you know everything changes. Now you have the D'Angelo Russell salary and and issues in your lap in terms of trying to get the most for him. I he's the guy in particular when you say something's got to give. He's always been the most obvious candidate for that. And so. Given the history with Draymond and the fact that there's kind of proof positive of what he can do with Steph and Clay, I think you know he's probably the 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 better bet to stick around for a little while. But if, if in a year D'Angelo Russell is still on the Warriors roster, I'd be pretty surprised. No matter what the team says, no matter how you know clearly invested they're trying to say that they are in him and his future and his time in Golden State, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. It didn't make a lot of sense to begin with, and certainly doesn't now as we're trying to reframe what the Warriors could be. One other thought here on the Warriors. We got that email from Waz earlier in the week asking us to sort of reassess the reputations of guys like Steph Curry, Draymond Green in the wake of the slow start, uh, you know, and the way Golden State has sort of, you know, fallen off from their peak a couple of years ago. I do think that this injury does shift Curry's overall career narrative slightly. I'm not saying that it erases anything that he's done previously. People know how much I respect Steph, how he's changed the game, molded the entire league around his skills here over the last five years. Uh, but there's been concerns about his durability for much of his career. The reason why his prime, his peak years were so incredible in part was he enjoyed perfect health. He was out there every single night and he was so dominant. He didn't really need to run up the minutes like crazy. And so he was able to just hit this incredibly consistent, reliable stride, uh, you know, to earn that unanimous MVP and, and to stack up, you know, winning percentages that basically we'd never seen before in the league. But it was a huge question coming into this season. Can Steph Curry stay healthy? What should his burden be? How many minutes should he play? And what we're seeing is really for the third straight year, Curry has an injury that will sideline him for a significant period of time. And when you're comparing Curry to some of the other best players of his generation, I do think the durability aspect, the reliability aspect, uh, the longevity aspect in terms of can you sustain good health has to be mentioned in conversations about him, right? Like I do think that his fans... Uh, 
know, he's got the Curry truth or diehards who are saying, look, he's been the best player in the league for six years and nobody gives him credit. And I think this is a part of the counter argument to that, right? Um, I can't exactly say I was shocked to find out that he didn't make it through the season unscathed. Yeah, but this, I mean, it's not like it's his ankles or his knees or some kind of chronic overuse. You know, I think I think those are valid criticisms of Steph in terms of could he have a James Harden-like workload? And maybe that's the really great underrated thing about Harden is how healthy he's able to stay while managing the usage that he does. But taking, you know, Aaron Baines trying to take a charge and you taking a bad fall and breaking your hand, I, I don't see how we could possibly hold that against Steph in any way. Well, I just think if you're saying, okay, well, rank him versus LeBron, right? Or rank him versus KD before the Achilles or rank him versus Harden, who you mentioned. And you're saying, okay, well, I think we can say Steph has had more achievements uh, individually than a player like Harden, right? But uh, I think we can definitely say like, okay, if you're trying to you know, start a franchise and, and have him for the next five years, he might not be your top pick at this point, even though he's only, what, 31 years old. Uh, he might not be a top five pick. Uh, that would factor into my mind. Like if I said you could have any player in the league for the next five years, where do you take step? No, I think your point is taken. It's just this particular injury, I don't think factors into that equation. Like I think that has to do with his general availability for sure. But does his, you know, in what way would his broken hand affect his ranking or the thinking around where he would rate relative to other superstars? I would say pretty much zero for me. Yeah. Well, it's not one injury, though. I mean, that's the thing. It's it's this pattern of like three straight years where, OK, it's this minor thing. It's this minor thing. And, you know, f- physicality, uh, you know, imposing athleticism. I mean, those th- kinds of things matter in these conversations. And I'm not sure going forward if Steph's a guy who you're counting on to play 75 games every year. You know what I mean? Like, it's weird to say because he's still relatively young and because he makes the game look so easy. But, you know, if he is you know, kind of trending towards this, uh, you know, section of his career where uh, it's almost like, you know, late career Tim Duncan, like where they're trying to keep minutes off of him. They're trying to, you know, maintain his health as much as possible. Like, I think that's something that Golden State has to look at. And I think anyone, if you're drafting Steph and saying, okay, he's going to be my franchise guy for the next five years, I want to build this thing around him. Like, I think that would be one of your primary concerns is, first of all, can we put a lot of defenders around him, uh, you know, to, make make sure you have the right offense defense balance with your team but second of all can we bubble wrap him as much as possible how do we get away with making sure he's healthy and available in may and june to kind of you know do what he does in the big moments because i don't know i just think that we've seen enough evidence here throughout his career now i think it's four separate seasons where he's missed um you know 10 plus games uh i mean that's that's a track record that has to be mentioned it does I mean, I think at a point where Kawhi Leonard, who, as far as I can tell, is made up of 98% like lean muscle tissue, if he's not playing 75 games every season, I don't know who should be. Like Maybe everybody should be proactively taking some time off just to prevent some of the wear and tear type stuff. But again, this injury was a total fluke. Like You could, you could load manage Steph as much as you want. You could load manage LeBron or Harden or anyone who jumps on a layup attempt as much as you want. And if they fall this way because a guy tries to take a charge in front of them, which is really a problem with the rules and the way they're oriented and what the defenders are encouraged to do. This could really happen to anybody, I think. All right, let's uh, shift gears here. We've got uh, other big news from Wednesday night, and it was, uh, you know, the uh, the brawl 
between Carl Anthony Towns, Joel Embiid, and then a cameo appearance uh, from Ben Simmons. Now, it spilled over into post-game comments on social media and Instagram. These guys were really doing it for the gram pretty hard. Um, I think at one point, Embiid said, I ain't no B-word. I was raised around lions and a cat pulled on me tonight. I got his mom giving me middle fingers. That's some serious real estate. So apparently Towns' mom was flipping Embiid off as he left the court. Um, Towns replied uh, with a location tag of all bark and no bite. And look, I'm really big on location tags when it comes to Instagram. I really appreciate when people do that. So um, that, that was nice work by him. And then he, he posted a photo of Embiid crying after uh, the Sixers lost uh, in the 2019 playoffs to the Toronto Raptors. Embiid came back again and said, imagine talking after a 20-point loss. You've never been to the playoffs. You finally won three games, and now he's talking and talking. You've been a bleep your entire life. I, I'm going to put your business out there, but I got the facts about you. Don't get it twisted. I own you. So there's some references there, I believe, to uh, off-court relationships and so forth. Um, but Embiid is not holding back, uh, you know, when he when he goes at Towns at all. And I think when I watch replays of kind of the altercation and everything else, uh, it's hard to disagree with Embiid's assessment that he's in Towns' head. Like I think Towns has just had an enough of Embiid. I don't think he can take it anymore. I think he hit his breaking point and that that was a major factor here. What about you? Well, I mean, before we even get into the beef from watching this live and and get trying to get into it, I was shocked that Ben Simmons didn't get either thrown out of this game a tech like absolutely nothing for wrapping Carl Towns in a headlock and laying on top of him. And I I don't know how you argue that that's kind of a de-escalation move. Well, I mean, Towns tapped out. I mean, what did you think about <laughs> tapping out? Uh, you know, I think he was basically like pleading for help at that point. A um, little bit. I can't say I've seen that before in an NBA fight. He did seem panicked, like he couldn't breathe and like he was going to die. In that situation, do you just pass out or do you tap out? What do you do? I'm tapping out. Yeah. Hell no. <laughs> okay. I don't want. Any, I don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> okay, so your team Townsend, that sounds fine. Um, the Simmons thing was aggressive, but I do think it's kind of a, a side plot here. I think that For sure. both the main guys need to be ejected like they were. They need to be suspended at least one game like they were. Uh, and with Simmons, I could see a fine uh, for his, you know, I, it doesn't seem like it was de-escalation. I do think it was, you know, pretty aggressive and unnecessary. Um, and he just caught caught up, I think, in the emotions of it, too. So from that standpoint, I do think that punishment uh, is warranted for him. But this Embiid town thing goes back a while now. Uh, Embiid has really challenged his manhood on multiple times. He likes calling him a cat, which sort of has this, you know, feminine, uh, demeaning uh, type of tone to it when Embiid uses it. Now, look, I'm a cat person, so, you know, I, it, it doesn't offend me. But I could see how in context uh, Towns would not... Uh, take kindly to it. So what do you say, Rob? Are you Team Towns or Team Embiid in this beef? And is it a good thing for the NBA to have this kind of a messy, high-profile rivalry between you know two of the top, what, three or four centers in the league? 
I'm probably from from a normal human perspective. I'm probably Team Towns because if you've ever played basketball against a guy who's anything like Joel Embiid, is just the most frustrating experience in the world. I can understand if if he is in Towns' head, I could understand why. If Towns is just kind of sick of it and fed up with it, I could understand completely why he would feel that way. I, I don't think it's a bad thing for the league at all. I mean, you don't want to see the fights. You don't want to see punches thrown, which thankfully they weren't in this case. It was more just kind of wrapping up and, and shoving and, you know, getting their arms locked, which ultimately ended in some headlocks. But I, I don't think the, the incident itself was that bad other than, you know, get these guys out of here. Let's move on with the game. But the bummer is that we only got, you know, 20 minutes of both of those guys in a, what is ultimately one of the best matchups in the league, two of the best bigs going head-to-head, really going at each other. I feel like we were shortchanged, like another 15 to 20 minutes of Towns versus Embiid, and I want a makeup. I want one-on-one, sell, let's sell some tickets, sell out an arena, get a, a full-on grudge match going between these guys, and just get some, some good hard post plays, some fouls, see what they got. Sounds like an all-star weekend event waiting to happen. That would be pretty wild. (laughs) The reason why I like this rivalry, though, I mean, like most rivalries, it's the differences between these two guys, right? I mean, it's the incredible offensive skill from Towns and then just the physical defensive impact of a guy like Embiid. It's the story that, you know, Towns is this basketball prodigy who everybody knows about kind of the whole way coming up. And then Embiid is is more of a, uh, you know, obviously he was a high-profile target uh, at Kansas, but you know he he certainly had a trickier path to uh, you know stardom and fame uh, than maybe Towns did. I mean, Towns was playing against NBA players in like international exhibitions at the age of like 15. You know, I mean, he, he was starting to get buzz very very early. Uh, it's also the idea that Towns, even though he's supposedly this soft guy, never misses a game. You know, he basically his perfect health his whole career. And Embiid, of course, has been in and out of lineups with all sorts of various things uh, over the years, even though he plays that tough guy role. Uh, and then there's also the the difference in their you know team-building narratives, right? I mean, you look at Minnesota, they don't have that secondary player to put alongside uh, you know Towns. They don't have a Ben Simmons. They have Andrew Wiggins. And then their experience uh, with Jimmy Butler kind of blew up in everyone's face and left a lot of hurt feelings. Whereas Philly's experience with Jimmy Butler also didn't work, but it did seem to kind of bring the main personality guys together to a certain degree. So there's just a lot narratively going on between these two guys. They're almost perfect foils. And I think Joel Embiid is the best thing that could possibly happen to Carl Anthony Towns. Because even though Towns' game is predicated upon skill, smooth offense, now he's ball handling, now he's running, uh, you know, offense, uh, you know, pick and rolls in certain situations, playmaking for his teammates. He's a really impressive passer. Uh, you know, he's got great, you know, textbook f- footwork, uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, working in the post at times. Uh, I think he's at his best when he's angry, you know, and that's usually how I feel about uh, big guys in general. Like if you're locked in, you've got a little bit of that Kevin Garnett thing going or the the crazy dead eye Tim, Un- uh, Tim Duncan thing going where, uh, the only thing you're thinking about is competition and winning and you know playing as hard as you possibly can. I think that's what Towns needs. Now he's not Wiggins, you know. I mean, he's not falling asleep and napping on the court at times. But I do think that fully engaged and enraged Towns is like the best thing that could happen for the Minnesota Timberwolves and he's the type of guy who could carry them into the playoffs if he can sustain that for like, you know, 5 or 6 months. So, uh I actually kind of hope that Embiid 
poke the bear a little bit here. You know, I hope this is going to lead to like a month straight of MVP level play from Towns. Am I reaching? No, I think you could definitely see it. And, and some of it is too, like you were saying, the way these guys' games and experiences kind of speak to each other, where it's not only, you know, the fact that Towns was highly touted and, and Joel coming from such a different background, such a different basketball context, but also like the worst things you could say about Carl Towns about you know, picking on his defense, for example, are the best things about Joel Embiid. And in a different way, Joel Embiid, or sorry, Carl Towns is the shooter that Joel Embiid pretends to be and the ball handling big that he sometimes masquerades as, you know, and ends up turning the ball over. And so I thought it was really interesting when you brought up that, you know, Towns and the lack of a secondary option and a secondary star in his life, you know, the fact that he doesn't have a Ben Simmons because, my God, can you imagine if Ben Simmons and Carl Towns were teammates? That would be unbelievable. Well, stop right there. Can you imagine if we just flipped Carl Towns into Embiid's place and took Embiid and put him in Minnesota? Are Which of those teams are different, right? Even if you just say for like the last four years, would Philly have been able to have as much success with Towns and the rest of the players that they've assembled there? Would they be viewed as the best team in the Eastern Conference, which I think they are right now, um, if they had Towns in place of Embiid? I mean, to me, they would. Uh, and if you're in Minnesota... I mean, there's an argument that if you have an elite defense every year, uh, thanks to Embiid, you know, maybe you have a higher, you know, uh, basement in terms of your your win total. Um, and maybe it's a little bit easier to build around Embiid. So, you know, maybe the Timberwolves have a little bit more success. But keep in mind, Embiid's missing a lot of time. And the less talent you have around him, the more, the, you know, your, your team is going to be filling uh, or feeling those, uh, those absences. So I kind of wonder if both teams would be like just basically the same if, if they flopped roles. No, I think, I mean, for one thing, Jimmy Butler might still be in Minnesota for one, you know, just given the personality differences between Embiid and Towns, but maybe I'm reading too much into that considering he just chose to lead the Sixers to join the Heat in the first place. I do think the Sixers would be in a much different place. And I think that's the whole crux of the, of the you know, Embiid and Simmons conversation is, you know, they can be really good together. If we separated them and got them into some slightly better fits, what would that look like? I'm inclined to think that the current version is probably better on balance, but I think just from a, a thought experiment perspective, you would you would love to see a player like Simmons with a wide variety of bigs to play with. Yeah, I'll tell you this much. I'm hitting the pause on breaking up the Sixers duo conversation, which has been something that I've flirted with here over the last like 12 to 18 months, because I think Philly's been the most impressive team in the East by a pretty clear margin. And we are taping this one day after Milwaukee blew a 20-plus point lead against the Boston Celtics and just had absolutely no second-half response for Jason Tatum and Marcus Smart. So maybe I'm smarting a little bit from Milwaukee's performance there. But to me, I don't know if you want to call it a playoff hangover or a success hangover from last season. There's something missing with the Bucks right now. And it may just be that we're still in October and everybody knows there's a long way to go. They don't really have as much to prove this year during the regular season. But there is no way they blow that game. Last year's Bucks just finish it off. They just take that 20-point win in Boston. No problem. They go home happy. And to see not only that they blew the lead, and there's going to be runs, you know, no question about it. But the way that it happened where you know they just didn't even really want to get up for it and a lot of just kind of lackadaisical responses in the second half um, from basically everybody on the team uh, that was you know slightly frightening uh, for somebody who's you know staked a lot on uh, Giannis and the Bucks. I mean it, it was a little bit uh, disappointing vibes from them uh, so to me if you're Philly like th this whole thing is shaping up quite well you've got Embiid out there 
you know, living life to, to his fullest. You've got the defense locking teams down, you know, basically night after night after night. Simmons has had some really, uh, you know, brilliant moments uh, of success offensively. Uh, I think, you know, if you're Philly, I mean, you're not going to have a parade for punking Carl Anthony Towns, but it's a pretty good time <laughs> to be alive. Yeah, and I think what you outlined with the Bucks too, if that persists, if they just have kind of a different vibe this season, they have to be one of the leading candidates to make a, a significant in-season trade just because all the pressure with Giannis. And then we saw last season with John Horst that, you know, he's able to pull Nikola Mirotic out of a hat. And so some some creative constructions, some different avenues we may not be considering in terms of where the Bucks could go. I think a lot of it's on the table if if things don't kind of go as planned over these next couple months. For sure. Hey, we got a question from Peter in Poland. Peter, shout out to you, man. Open Floor Globe covers every country. I love that you weighed in. He writes, my beloved Timberwolves are 3-0. and and, and he wrote this, obviously, before the Philly game. And they're being carried by Superman Carl Anthony Towns. And Wiggins channeled his inner Tracy McGrady during the fourth quarter against the Heat. Uh, this will not continue for long, Peter writes. But boy, it feels good. So I'm curious. I know you really appreciate Towns' Towns's game, his impact, you know, what he can do. Um, you know, you're looking at opening week MVP candidates. You know, I watched Anthony Davis put up 40-20 this week, and so I was trying to, you know, survey, okay, well, who deserves to be in this conversation? Giannis can be in the conversation. Um, you know, Kawhi Leonard should be in the conversation. And Carl Anthony Towns needed to be in the conversation based on just the crazy numbers he was putting up, you know, right out of the gate. Uh, what are you seeing from Towns in Minnesota? And now that a spot has opened up with Golden State falling out, are the Timberwolves at all positioned to take that spot, to, to make that playoff jump, or no? I think they could be in the running for it. And we, we've talked about them previously in that capacity. And some of it is, you know, Sacramento. It's not just Golden State. Sacramento hasn't looked good. New Orleans hasn't looked good. You know, Dallas has been pretty solid so far and has gutted out some impressive wins. But some of these teams that we thought would be in kind of the 9 to 12 range now may be a little worse than we thought if, if things kind of keep going along the track that they have so far. And so from that perspective, I think Minnesota could work their way in. But, you know, more importantly and more relevantly, if Carl Towns is an MVP candidate and not just, you know, a good all-star center, then that changes their perspective entirely. You know, they still need a lot of help. There's still a flawed roster in a lot of ways. But, you know, Jarrett Culver is going to get better over the course of the season. They're going to figure out ways to use guys like Jake Lehman a little more effectively. All these little pieces, you know, along the periphery of the roster, uh, Shabazz Napier, you know, are, are going to fit a little bit better as they go. And if Towns can be that guy, and he's shown that he can be for games at a time, weeks, maybe even months at a time, but I think this is the best defense we've ever seen from him and the best complete offensive game we've ever seen from him. So I think there's, there's obviously a lot to like there. Yeah, and I love it because he's the exact type of player who could pout, you know? And I guess it's a long season, so we'll see. But, I mean, you look at the situation, cold weather climate, franchise that's not a marquee franchise, uh, a sidekick in Wiggins who's got to be endlessly frustrating, no major offseason additions, a new front office. Uh, he does like the coach there, Ryan Saunders, so that is definitely helpful. Uh, but, you know, he's a max-level player who knows he doesn't have enough help to really make noise in the league, right? That can go sideways, and we see it go sideways a lot. Uh, again, I go back to this confrontation with Embiid. I hope that this sparks him, and, you know, he gets into this mode like KG Minnesota, or even like that Kevin Love, you know, the, the valiant effort that he put in during his last couple of years in, in Minnesota where he's just putting up crazy numbers night after night, 
forcing the league to pay attention to what he's doing uh, because that skill is in there with Carl Towns. You know, we can all see it uh, and we want to see it as often as possible. All right. Um, Thaddeus uh, wants us to go a slightly different direction. He wants to talk about Kawhi Leonard's humanity. He writes, we can all agree this season is confirmation that Kawhi simply isn't human. He is the Terminator. He was already a ruthless defender who could get to his spot and score with almost unrivaled efficiency. However, the knock on him was that he kind of had to do it out of the team flow and he couldn't really make his teammates better. But Kawhi is dropping dimes now. If this keeps up, he literally has no weakness. And and Thaddeus is right, man. Kawhi has set multiple career highs uh, in assists already this season. Uh, he's moving the ball a lot. Uh, it's not so much the ISO Kawhi show, although he, he does go to that sort of whenever he needs a bucket. Um, are you as impressed uh, with Kawhi's playmaking as a lot of people on the internet are? Because I've been seeing a lot of buzz on Twitter about uh, the new and improved uh, Terminator Kawhi. I'm, I'm very impressed. And I just don't know that I was ready for a world where Kawhi averages like seven assists per game just because he decided to. Uh, And it it really is, you know, if we can take kind of a sidebar from the rest of the Giannis Inc. board for a minute, it's getting harder and harder to explain away or make a case against Kawhi as the league's best player right now. Kawhi is the best player in the league to me. Uh, I've I've seen him play a lot more in person this year, you know, just already because of whether it's preseason, regular season than at any point of his career. Uh, but I'm feeling pretty confident that he's doing things now that he didn't do even last year. I think he definitely was the best player in last year's playoffs once Kevin Durant went down. Um, and I think that the shooting aspect uh, combined with some of the improved playmaking makes it harder to, to argue that Giannis is a more effective offensive player. I mean, I think so much of Giannis's value came from driving kick threes and being able to be that main player within a super efficient offense, but LA's offense has just been absolutely off the charts so far to start the season. And Kawhi is a huge, huge reason why in terms of the passing pick and roll stuff from the top with their bigs. Uh, I like that. He, he feeds Zubak. I mean, it's very old school. He's got kind of this clunky center in the middle and he, he really tries hard to involve him sometimes a little bit too hard. He gets into some turnover issues, kind of trying to force feed the guy. Um, but I think he realizes that if they can get Zubak going, then, uh, you know, it's just, you know, wide open shots for their shooters, you know, after that, you know, kind of all night. Uh, but also, uh, you know, he's he's showing good vision around the perimeter. But I think a, a couple factors can help explain this. First of all, they don't have that ball dominant point guard, whether it's Kyle Lowry or Tony Parker, who he's been used to playing with in the past. That's something Kawhi himself has mentioned. He feels more of a burden, more of a responsibility to do that uh, for the Clippers, because that's not really who Patrick Beverly is. Um, and when Lou Williams has the ball, it's more straightforward playmaking for himself in like a two-man game as opposed to keeping all five guys involved, right? So I think Kawhi feels like he has to pick up the slack. Um, and then I think, you know, the other issue for him is that his teammates are just really good. I mean, the Clippers are nice. Like, they're a squad. And so, you know, you're going to rack up more assists when guys are hitting shots. And he, I mean, he makes easy passes. He makes really functional passes just by making reads. And it, he's going to be in a situation every night where because of his physical advantages, because of the way he can get to the rim and he has the pull-up jumper, he's going to see all kinds of different defensive coverages. And so his ability to adapt to those on the fly, in the moment, possession to possession and quarter to quarter is going to dictate a lot of what the Clippers do well and where they struggle. And so to see him come out of the gate, and he's already seen you know a wide variety of coverages, 
and he's just picking them apart. Like he's he's he knows exactly where to throw, you know, guys like Landry Sham at open already, even after such limited time playing together. It's it's really impressive. I don't really know how he does it because you know we've talked about you know you're mentioning Kyle Lowry and Tony Parker and these other guards he's played with. Sure, like he's he's taken a different kind of role with those teams. But even if you put top flight point guards on a new team, I mean, look at Mike Conley. It takes some time to kind of adjust to your new surroundings to figure things out. And the fact that Kawhi has been dumped into this situation, entirely new roster, completely different kinds of players from what he saw in San Antonio or Toronto, and yet he already has such a good sense of how to feed them and how to get them in their spots, in addition to you know some clear development in terms of understanding what defenses are going to throw at him, it's, it's really remarkable. It is. You know, Doc Rivers joked a couple of days ago. He said, look, it's been easy to integrate Kawhi into our offense. You just give him the ball, <laughs> and everybody in the room starts laughing, and it's like, well... That's true. I mean, it, it, there's a real sensation to it when Kawhi takes the court for these Clippers. It's like everybody on both teams knows um, just what a phenomenal talent this guy is. I mean, there's a swagger and aura around him. Everything is sort of revolving around him when, when he's got the ball in his hands. Uh, you know, everybody's watching. Of course, the crowd anticipation is there too, but it's sort of like, you know, you, you go in and you play summer uh, basketball in the gym, right? And if there's everybody realizes pretty quickly who the best player is, and like he's kind of king of the court, that's exactly the vibe Kawhi's got right now. So to me, there's no question he's the best player in the league, uh, the best all around player. And I think Rob, you know, you and I might have underrated him in as an MVP candidate too, because I think it's easy to write him off and say, oh, he's only going to play 65 games, and he did sit out uh, already for load management on Wednesday against Utah. But I think he's got as good of a shot to win MVP this year as basically anyone in the league. It's been a weird start to the MVP conversation because you have Anthony Davis kind of storming this thing and really validating some of that idea where I know you and I have had some, you know, expressed some skepticism as to whether LeBron would still be the best player on the team or certainly the most forward facing star from an MVP voting standpoint. You have Harden and Westbrook kind of trading off games. It certainly took, you know, James a little bit longer to, to come on this season so far. And then, you know, Kawhi has been phenomenal, but we also haven't seen Paul George come back yet. And so how will that, you know, not just the the load management or the injury situations with Kawhi and how many games and minutes he plays, but how does he look and how does this team look when Paul George is back? Let me ask you this. If you could undo the Paul George trade based on what you've seen, bring Gallo and Shea Gilgis-Alexander and like four or five first-round picks back to the Clippers and just roll with that squad, would you do it? <laughs> what? A, well, for one, I don't think you could, right? Because I think Kawhi coming was contingent on Paul being there. Well, let's just say like, you know, you, you won the stare down in the poker match and you're like, Kawhi, come on, you don't want to go play with LeBron. You don't want to be, you know, going over to his house for Taco Tuesday. And we know for sure you don't want to live in Toronto with the cold weather. So you're coming to the Clippers and we don't think the Paul George trade is actually in our best interest. So we're not going to do it. This is going to be our squad. Gallinari, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who's been balling for Oklahoma City, and then a whole bunch of first round picks that you could use, you know, in trades you know, maybe go out there and snag a Draymond Green at the trade deadline, right? What do you think? Would you rather have that or Paul George? Well, they definitely gave up a ton. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, what we've learned from these previous, you know, championship level teams is that they peter out when they don't have things to trade anymore. When they don't, you know, the young players, they've all traded away, the picks, they've all traded away. So, I mean, that's where you could really see this Clippers group hitting a wall. No one's, you know, really at risk of being over the hill yet. I think all the guys are kind of firmly in their prime. 
but these things take their toll and eventually you need the means to replenish your roster I think that's where they're going to really feel that trade a lot especially if you know Paul for whatever reason isn't as good as advertised which given you know the extent of what they gave up is a real possibility I think I would bet on that variety of players and assets even over Paul George for as good as Paul is for as helpful and as great a fit as he could be with Kawhi like Shea and all those picks and Gallo and you know even if you want to trade Gallo as you said and what you could get for that that's that's a nice place to be I mean I think you'd really have to think about it um but I'm also really excited to watch the Paul George experience and I really cannot wait to watch him play alongside Kawhi and see what that's going to do to their defense so I'm not advocating for it but uh, I think there's a really strong argument uh, you know, going the other way. Um, you know, one other thing on this MVP dynamic you were mentioning between Anthony Davis and LeBron, you know, AD goes for 40 and 20. And, you know, you know how much I love Jaron, Rob. I mean, Jaron, I love Jaron Jackson Jr.'s game. Uh, he got tutored by Anthony Davis. I mean, there's like no other word for it. I mean, he could barely stay on the court. So many fouls. Davis was incredible you know, start to finish in that game. But, you know, it's clear he was the most valuable player on the court. But LeBron just has this sensation where, like, yes, he's really excited for Anthony Davis. Yes, he's cheering for Anthony Davis. Yes, he's hyping up Anthony Davis with all of his comments. But, like, you look at the end of the game, and LeBron just has this need to be the center of attention. So what do we get? Taco Tuesday chants throughout the entire arena with LeBron, like, dancing around and doing his little, like, yippee-ki-yay thing on the bench where that winds up not overshadowing what Anthony Davis did because obviously that was the main story. But like in the building, there's it's just like this tension where like LeBron is not ready to take a step back, right? LeBron definitely views himself as like the most famous person, the biggest star of the league, uh, a content factory day after day after day after day. If you haven't seen his Halloween costume, I mean, it's very next level, Edward Scissorhands, uh, you know, makeup, I mean, the whole nine yards, right? Um what do, you, what do you think the, the odds are? What do you think the odds are that LeBron has seen Edward Scissorhands? I, I think he likes those kinds of movies. I, I think he's into horror movies. So I would but it's, say, but 100%. it's not really a horror. It's not really a horror movie. Like from his costume, it seems like the kind of costume somebody would make when they thought a character mistakenly was from a horror movie. But it's like kind of a heartwarming family movie. With the guy with scissor hands? Yeah. He prunes. <laughs> he prunes some shrubs. Like I mean. I, Ben, we got we got to get you on Edward Scissorhands. You and LeBron, the three of us are going to hit a theater. We're going to check this out. Look, I hate Halloween. I don't like most movies. Don't force me to do anything <laughs> besides watch basketball. Uh, no, when was the last time you dressed up for Halloween? Like honestly, dressed up. It's it's been a while. It's not not exactly my holiday either. I think I might have worn a basketball jersey like my sophomore year of college, so that I could like gain entry to some sort of a mixer. Uh, that might be the last time I participated with a Halloween thing in any manner. And I got to go to Staples Center tonight and everyone's going to be dressed up and I'm going to be looking like an accountant and I cannot wait. <laughs> um, but anyway, back on topic here. What I was trying to say, LeBron just still just tugging on the attention, right? He just, he, he can't let it go. And even in the postgame comments, like Anthony Davis is unbelievably boring when it comes to his postgame comments. It's just a fact. Like he does not ever try to say anything. And so it's just natural that LeBron kind of overshadows him in that context. So this dynamic where I am surprised how quickly Anthony Davis has established himself as the most consistent producer, uh, you know, clearly the best two-way player that the Lakers have. Um, it happened basically immediately, and he's putting up crazy numbers right off the top. 
but still, will that be enough, uh, you know, given the personalities involved? I think it's something that we got to watch. Well, just to clear this up, are you saying LeBron had plants in the crowd to instigate these Taco Tuesday chants? Because it seemed like he was just reacting to what they were doing. Uh, look, he's egging everybody on all the time. I, I'm not okay. saying like he was like calling out to like Kevin in the sixth row and be like, all right, when there's two minutes left in this blowout, I'm going to need you to start chanting about tacos. But he just can't help himself. All I'm saying is if most NBA players, if a fan yelled at them like, hey, man, what about the tacos? They're going to let it slide. They're not going to jump up, do a dance on the bench, uh, lead the cheers. At one point, you know, he was like pointing to various sections of the crowd, trying to get one to say taco, one to say Tuesday, it seemed like. I mean, this was like a real cheerleader type performance from LeBron. It's just a lot. You know, I mean, it's just very extra OD, whatever the phrases you want to use. I'm not mad about it. I'm not saying that he should stop doing it. He should be himself. He's the best ambassador the sport has at this point. It's just if you have another teammate, who is in the middle of kind of like an historic performance, just finished off 40-20, and the attention is back on you yet again, um, that just feels like a little, you know, a little tension point, that's all. No, LeBron is perpetually a lot, one way or another. It always does end up kind of being about him. I think in some cases, whether he wants it to or not. I think this entire situation would really bug uh, Open Floor Globe emailer Ty from Palm Springs, okay? And he emailed us at Open Floor Mail, at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Ty writes, the NBA has a content industrial complex. Every decision the league makes is intended to increase the amount of content created around the league. Shorter contracts means more free agents, more player movement, more tweets, more podcasts. Uh, Rules and how the game is officiated have slanted the NBA much more in favor of the offense, leading to more highlights, free player movement, individual play, and emphasis reliance on star players. You can see it in how Adam Silver values tweets and online impressions over TV viewership and uh, attendance. It is literally everywhere in the league. I'm not old, but whenever I see a headline about how Kyrie or Kat hashtag went off fire emoji, eyes emoji, but they fail to mention that the team lost, I shed a single tear for the future of basketball in this country. Heaters from Ty. I mean, Ty, you do sound old there. You said you're not. You sound a little old there. But hey, I'm right there with you. I agree with every word of what you said. Rob, what do you think? No, I'm getting some serious old man yells at cloud vibes from Ty's email. Is it a shock that the NBA wants a bigger share of the attention economy? Like that's the business they're in. They're competing with Netflix. They're competing with Disney. They're competing with everybody else. They want to make sure people are as plugged into the NBA product as possible. But I'm not really getting a sense of how much like Adam Silver values Twitter translating to the larger health of the NBA product. Well, look, I, I, Ty is throwing a lot of things together here. I think, first of all, if you had the choice, would you go forward with the current rule changes that have really helped offense blossom? Or would you go back to the old days? I don't I would not go back to the old days. What about you? No, not at all. Okay, so that one's pretty obvious. Now, in terms of the shorter contracts, would you prefer to go back to a time where there was five and six year deals and there was just dead money on everybody's salary cap and teams weren't able to kind of retool on the fly? Or would you prefer the current model where I think players are being compensated a little bit more fairly and and accurately for their uh, contributions? Which do you prefer? 
Well, I think you want to balance because you don't want it to be a total mercenary culture. You know, you don't want everyone on one-year deals, but at the same time, you don't you don't want them locked up for so long that, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the thought experiment of what if Carl Towns and Ben Simmons play together in the current NBA, we could get that at some point. You know, so I think you kind of want where it is now, the sweet spot of most of the deals in the league are three to four years and players are able to kind of maneuver through them and around them. I'm, I'm pretty good with the current setup. I'm great with it. Look, the five and six year deals were just too much. I'd be okay with, you know, certain situations you can get a five year deal. Um, or, you know, if you had a franchise guy, maybe you could treat him a little bit differently and go longer. But, you know, having the vast majority of guys on shorter term contracts saves teams from injury issues, saves, te- saves teams from guys uh, just cashing paychecks, which was an issue there, you know, say 10 years ago and, and not necessarily, you know, living up to their full potential. Um, I think it, it has been better for the product. So my point here is, Ty. I think Adam Silver has made some pretty smart fundamental decisions when it comes to the player contracts, uh, when it comes to style of play. And some of this dates back even to David Stern. I think the NBA uh, has been intelligent. Now, when you're looking at media partners, uh, I definitely hear your concerns, right? Because, uh, you know, it's, I don't play fantasy basketball, Rob. I think you probably know that. But I do think that, you know, the numbers, the fixation on that kind of stuff does change the conversation at times away from, you know, the most important values of basketball. And so that's why, you know, I'm, I'm out there with Ty on his lawn, a little bit angry. Um, I think that you should be leading in most cases with results, you know, wins, losses before you're, you know, simply celebrating uh, individual achievements in part because the stats don't mean as much as they used to, you know, a 50 point game today is not the same thing as a 50 point game uh, five or 10 years ago. So just because, you know, Kyrie or Kat, you know, to use the examples he brought up, uh, goes out there and has, you know, that type of performance, um, it's not as meaningful um, as it used to be uh, because of the pace, because of the space, you know, the emphasis on three-point shooting uh, and all of that. It doesn't mean it's worthless, uh, but I don't think that we should be centering the entire content machine around hyping up star players and those types of efforts. No, and I, I do think there are two kind of larger factors at work, too, that explain some of what Ty is describing, where on the one hand, I think the NBA more than ever understands the value of a superstar player. And so that's why tanking exists. That's why people in free agency are so competitive to to just get a chance to pitch Giannis, to go after a LeBron or a Kawhi or a Kevin Durant or whoever it is. Superstars are valued differently than ever before, and I think more accurately than ever, ever before. I think the teams just have a better sense of what one good, one truly great player can do for you. And then parallel to that, there's just a different kind of reaction and digestion of celebrity and celebrity-oriented news in the U.S. and U.S. culture right now, and even as far as like third and fourth level celebrities, where you're getting into you know YouTube stars or Twitch stars, and the kind of like NBA equivalent of those like C or D list guys have their own cult followings and their own you know appeal online to certain constituencies, and so that combination of factors where you have superstars who are all powerful, you have interest in celebrity from a gossip type angle down to third and fourth tier stars it just created this explosion of interest that sometimes is a little counterproductive to you know like winning games and the idea of kind of putting together the best team possible but i don't think there's any question it kind of stokes interest in the nba product yeah look ty i mean we can look at this carl anthony towns versus joel Embiid thing as a perfect case study right guys like you are going to want to watch them bang in the post night after night who's got the better game who's easier to build uh, teams around you're going to ask those fundamental basketball questions and I'm going to be there with you 
there's a lot of people out there that just want to hear Joel Embiid call uh, call Carl Anthony Towns the P word. You know, it's easier to, for them to digest. <laughs> they don't care about pick and rolls. They don't care about pick and pops. They want the drama. They want the beef on Instagram. And, uh, you know, frankly, I would prefer these guys didn't use profanities when they go at each other. I would prefer they, they keep it uh, a little bit more respectful than Embiid did. I, I thought uh, some of the comments that he was making were regrettable. But at the same time, this is now part of the show, I think, like Rob was hinting at. And if you can hook in new viewers from their personalities, you know, from these, you know, social media engagement and all of that, that is better for the sport. The more people paying attention to basketball ultimately is better. And I think that's why you've seen a pretty hands-off approach from Adam Silver when it comes to like social media behavior, because, you know, David Stern would have had a freak out about how Embiid has conducted himself on Twitter and Instagram over these last couple of years. And, uh, you know, Silver has just taken a different approach. And I do think, uh, you know, financial interests or the the content complex machine that you want to describe here, uh, you know, is uh, at the heart of his reasoning on that issue. All right. We got one last question here, Rob. It's from Steven. He writes, I live in New York City where the cost of living is really high. I pay $125 a month for cable and internet. Knicks games are only on MSG, which is only available through cable or a very expensive streaming service. The best games are usually on TNT, ESPN, or ABC, but some are on NBA TV, which costs extra. And then there are the costs associated with League Pass. My real question is what level of monthly spend do you think is the right amount for watching basketball? How many League Pass games a month makes it worth it? Uh, Ben, do you and Rob get the ad-supported version or the stadium feed? I would love to know your thoughts on how you consume basketball games. So, Rob, this is a question we usually get, uh, you know, pretty much every year. So I'll throw it to you because I don't know what your answer is. What? How do you watch games? Uh, do you have? I, I assume you have League Pass, uh, but you know, how many games are you watching per week? How many to go to in person? And then, what would your advice be to Steven so that he can get on your level? Yeah, I mean, from a League Pass perspective, I'm usually watching on TV as much as possible. I want to keep my notes on my laptop. I want to be able to rewind and fast forward all through the TV, which I think is just a little more intuitive than the broadband product sometimes, plus a lot more reliable. You know, doing this for a job, you just kind of can't live and die with the whims of whether the broadband app is going to work on a nightly basis. It's it's not quite there yet. And so I like having the cable there as kind of a security blanket. But, you know, as you mentioned, you go to some games. If I'm not at a game, I'll usually watch maybe two full games and part or whole, you know, the entirety of a third game, uh, in, you know, on a night's work. So I'm trying to pack that in. But also coming coming to us in this podcast for this advice on what your monthly spend should be is, is it's, it's not the best idea. I mean, we're going to be enablers in this case because we're the kinds of sickos who were, you know, subscribing to League Pass before it was ever our jobs. But, you know, we're kind of neck deep in this stuff. But I do think, you know, if you could find a way to, you know, cut the cord cable-wise, give up the Knicks games, for example, and find some alternative streams for some of those other, you know, to get the TNT or the ESPN and then subscribe to League Pass through broadband, maybe maybe that's the way to get the cost down. Yeah, look, I mean, Stephen, you're basically asking, like, Tony Montana and Marlo how many bricks you should buy. I mean, come on, what are they going to say? As many as you can afford. Um, I think, I don't know how all these streaming services and everything like that works. Personally, I think League Pass is an incredible value. You know, I watch basketball games, I would say, seven nights a week, it's, it's fair to say, um, whether in person or on League Pass. I mean, when you're talking about a couple hundred bucks or, you know, I think it might be 250 now to get the, the stadium feed version. Um, 
you know, to me, that just pencils out pretty cleanly over the course of an entire season. So I, I think it's worth it. Um, you know, again, Stephen, if you have a balanced life and you have other interests, like you've come to the wrong people. Okay. We're just going to be saying watch basketball all day long, every day. It will pay off. Um, I think that you are right. The NBA has divvied out a lot of its best games to ESPN uh, and TNT. So, I mean, th- that's probably the highest priority. If you're not completely neck deep and watching games constantly, um, having access to those would be sort of my deal breakers. Like, I really couldn't imagine a life where I didn't have access to the TNT and ESPN games. There would just be a huge hole there. Um, and I would feel just the deepest sense of shame and FOMO. And I just, you know, it would be hard to just go on day to day if I didn't have those games. So that's where I'm coming from, Stephen. And I would say just buy a league pass, ask for it for a Christmas present or a birthday present. Uh, it will pay off. Um, you know, the thing with league pass, it's just handy because you never know what game is going to be good. And last night's like a perfect example, right? I mean, I literally had five games up simultaneously because the the Rockets and the Wizards were each were at like 159 to 158 by the end of it. Harden had 59 points. I mean, you look at the schedule and you think, okay, that's probably not going to be the world's greatest game. Yet it goes nuts. You had the Milwaukee game that I mentioned earlier was on ESPN. I mean, there was just a whole bunch of different games, uh, you know, simultaneously, and and that's the beauty of League Pass. So to me, I think it uh, kind of a no brainer. I'm a little offended you even asked, Stephen. Step your game up, Stephen, and you will be glad you did. And I do not get a cut for the League Pass proceeds, by the way. So this is just pure advice from me to you. All right, uh, Rob, we've made it to the end of another episode of Open Floor. Thanks so much to everybody who emailed uh, to openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. We didn't have time, but we got great questions from everywhere from uh, Israel to Austria and, and lots of places in between. We appreciate you guys keeping those coming. It's been an awesome start to the season and your engagement has just made it that much better. I really appreciate it. Guys, go to our Apple podcast page by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find it, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. It really helps. Uh, Find me on Instagram at ben.goliver. Rob, until next week, I will talk to you. Later, Ben.